The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here is your top five at five. Sell in May and go away. (laughs) Not today, as futures kick off the month soaring. Warren Buffett and crew coming out swinging, talking about everything from stocks to Bitcoin, and not in a good way. We'll tell you what he and Charlie Munger said. The health crisis in India growing worse as the White House finally considers sending vaccines there. We've got the latest numbers. The Biden administration also gearing up to kick off talks on its two $2 trillion spending plans. But will even some Democrats balk at the price tags as the American economy surges? And we stick with the roadways for your morning RBI as the dramatic uptick in the number of you getting behind the wheel surges to go, well, anywhere. It is Monday, May 3rd, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I'm Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to May. Welcome to Monday. We appreciate you being here. Well, here's how your money and the global markets are setting up their day. And of course, a new trading month futures. They are nicely in the green. Dow futures up 195. NASDAQ up 27. Now, April, remember April, proving to be a strong month for stocks. The S&P 500 notching its third straight month of gains, adding more than 5%, with the NASDAQ climbing by about the same, the Dow up about 3%. All this is new data from J.P. Morgan Chase, and the Federal Reserve shows that you, Mr. or Mrs. Individual Investor, are holding more stocks than ever before, climbing now to 41% of your total financial assets last month. That is the highest ever. We've also got to take a look at, of course, the cryptos. Because Ethereum breaking past 3,000, a new record high. It's at 31.75. Bitcoin also soaring this morning. In fact, Bitcoin up 18.26 to 58.716. By the way, Ethereum is up more than 300% this year. Bitcoin has, quote, only doubled. Everybody likes Ether. Now, let's focus on Europe. And you may not be paying attention, but one market to watch in Europe is Greece. That's right. The Grec, Greece, ETF, is up 57% over the past year. And money continues to pour into that country's stock funds. According to research firm EPFR, Inflows into the Greece-focused stock market were the most last week since all the way back in the fall of 2016. Ethereum and Greece, the two hottest things in the world right now. Well, we're going to have much more on the markets and your money all morning long, but right now to a much more serious story, and that is the surge in COVID cases in India as the situation there gets much more dire. Frank Holland is here with more on that and some of this morning's other top headlines. Good morning, Frank. 
Uh, good morning to you, Brian. The continued surge there has pushed case numbers to a fresh record level, with India reporting more than 400,000 new daily cases over the weekend. Meanwhile, the White House says it's looking to distribute vaccines to India and other countries now that millions of Americans have received their doses. That move coming in, coming after Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's recent conversation with President Biden on lifting patent protections on vaccines to increase access to the treatments. Treasury Secretary Yellen spent the weekend promoting the Biden administration's trillions in proposed new spending to boost the American economy. Speaking yesterday, Yellen touted a big return for the U.S. if lawmakers approve the president's plans on infrastructure and education. The plans are extremely um, important and necessary to um, invest in our economy so that we can be competitive and um, have families and children succeed, um, invest in infrastructure, in R&D, and the, the things that shore up middle-class prosperity. There will be a big return. I expect productivity to rise. Right. There will be um, great returns from investing in research and development and uh, enabling uh, families to participate with paid leave and child care support in the workforce. And Warren Buffett is warning of inflation risk amid a red-hot recovery from the pandemic. Speaking to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders at the company's annual meeting, Buffett said his portfolio companies were seeing very substantial inflation in a range of sectors amid shortages of raw materials. He also warned the consequences of near-zero interest rates remain an unanswered question. Buffett also taking on Robinhood, saying it's catering to the gambling instincts of investors. Becky Quick, who moderated the Q&A portion of that meeting, will have much more on Buffett's comments later in the hour. Brian? All right, Frank, thank you very much, and we'll see you in a few minutes. All right, now let's get back down to the markets and your money. Now, your first guest this morning was on a short while ago and brought all kinds of great stock picks for us, but as it happens in the morning, sometimes the time gets the better of you, and we had to say goodbye a little bit early before we could get to all of them, so we said we'll have you back, and we mean it. Joining us again is Kate Fattis of Grace Capital. Uh, Kate, good to have you back on. Thank you very much. Uh, great to start the week with you as well. Uh, you were just getting into all these names, and we're like, sorry, got to go. Time's up. Let's jump into them if we can. First up, we got a lot of new TVs being sold at Best Buy. A lot of those are Vizios. We don't talk about the stock much. What makes it attractive to you? Hi, Brian. How are you? Vizio is great. It is turning this industry on its head. Forget cable. Now, with Roku and Vizio, the TV is back in power. It's a TV manufacturer. What does it provide? It provides streaming. You can get your Hulu. You can get your Netflix. Guess what? They're giving you about 100 other ad-supported channels, so you don't need cable any longer. And as a result, they're making a lot of money. Roku went public three years ago at $18. It's now a $300 stock. Vizio went public a month ago at $21. I'm expecting big things from Vizio. Well, well there's nothing. By the way, Kate, cable still, you know, like we kind of like cable in some ways here. Uh, let's move on to Edwards Life Sciences. As we've said, there will be a day, hard to believe but true, when COVID's in the rearview mirror. Unfortunately, still got a lot of big problems health-wise in this country, in this world we got to focus on. Is that one of the reasons you like Edwards Life Sciences? 
It is. We've got an aging population and you get in your 70s. You can't get up the stairs. You think, oh, it's old age. Guess what? It's not. It's because your heart valves aren't closing properly or they're not opening properly. Now, that used to require uh, open heart surgery. Now with Edwards, they have a catheter. They string it up through your blood veins into your heart. It's minimally invasive. It works great. They make a lot of money for it. Their first heart uh, valve, the Sapien, is to help you open your valve. The second one, which is coming up, is going to help you close. We think that's going to allow them to double their revenues in the next five years. Edwards is one you got to hold. You got to have it in your portfolio. Yeah, the Sapien transcatheter certainly has been one of those products, which, again, because of COVID, maybe not getting the attention that it deserves for a very, very common problem. Okay, this third stockade is one you do not own, I don't think, yet. You also say, eh, you know what, if you don't really understand Bitcoin or Ethereum or anybody else, don't worry. Own Coinbase as a proxy for those, and you like the fact that it's not bragging about zero trading fees. <laughs> Coinbase is making money like the brokers used to make. It's a custodian. You want to buy your Bitcoin, your Ethereum, you send them your money. They'll open a brokerage account for you like Robinhood, like Schwab, except they're charging fees. $15 a trade, $20 a trade. They are making so much money. A lot of people think that they're expensive because they're pricing them on a price to sales basis. You actually, these guys actually make money. If you price it on a price to free cash flow basis, it's only trading at 20 times. It's risky. They're going to be competitors. It's not going to be the only one. There are new ones that are going to be going public, but we're betting on Coinbase. They're the first. They've been in this business 10 years. They went from zero to 50 billion market cap. Isn't that amazing? Actually charging for the product you provide in a way the consumer, they may not like, Kate, but they can understand. Charging for your product. It's so 2019. Kate Faddis of Grace Capital. Kate, great to start the week with you and the day. Thank you. Have a great day. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. All right, you're welcome. Likes Vizio, Edwards Life Sciences, and Coinbase. All right, we are just getting started here on WEX. And when we come back, your morning's big buddy movers, including the one U.S. bank that Barron says is a big-time underrated buy. That's your chart. We'll show you the name. And Verizon reportedly finding a buyer for its beaten-up Internet assets. Anybody remember AOL? It's still around and apparently being sold. And later on, what exactly is in the president's latest spending plans? It's confusing. Don't worry. Raymond James, Ed Mills, here to break it all down and let you know. Very busy hour. We return right after this. Dow Futures up 186. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. It is time now for a check on some of this morning's big money movers. And dude, somebody else apparently is getting a Dell. Barron's is high on a big bank and a potential obstacle for a major rail merger. All right, here we go. Stock number one is Dell. It struck a deal to sell its boomy cloud business to private equity firms TPG and Francisco Partners for about $4 billion. Boomy, which Dell bought back in 2010, makes software that helps applications communicate with each other by transferring data between them. Stock number two, Bank of America. Barron's believes that stock is a buy. It says the B of A may be the best position of the U.S. banks to navigate the current climate and the post-pandemic economic recovery. Bank of America already up 35% this year. And stock number three, Canadian Pacific. It filed a formal objection with U.S. regulators this weekend over rival Canadian Nationals' nearly $30 billion bid to buy Kansas City Southern. It claims that Canadian Nationals' offer does not qualify to be exempt from tougher merger rules. The two companies are in a race to take over Kansas City Southern and create the first direct rail link linking Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. All right, still on deck. Apple and the creator of Fortnite set to face off in a courtroom, and it may end up being a billion-dollar battle. We're going to tell you why. Today's big number, $1.98 trillion. That's the total assets under management invested in ESG funds at the end of March, according to Morningstar. Sustainability-focused funds saw net inflows of $185 billion in the first quarter. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, welcome or welcome back. It is time now for some good news and your daily COVID vaccination update. And as of Sunday morning, more than 245 million doses have now gone into American arms. Roughly 147 million of us have received at least one dose, and nearly 105 million are fully vaccinated. The percentage of the population over 18 who are fully vaxxed has now topped 40%, with 83% of the high-risk group, those over 65, getting at least one shot. And some huge news on Sunday. As new American cases fell below 30,000, that is the lowest in eight months, and down a stunning 90% from the January highs. More importantly, hospitalizations have also crashed. They are down 81% in the same period in the states that are tracked by the CDC. Pretty wonderful news on COVID. Well, even as COVID hopefully fades here and in the UK, its impact will be lasting long past when it's over. One result is that 
I guess rather oddly, stocks are soaring as the Fed and governments throw trillions of dollars around the world at their economies. And the biggest stocks have only gotten bigger as many companies were forced by the government to shut down last year. Look at that. 64% jumps in Apple, Amazon up 55%, Google, Microsoft, and Facebook, the big, getting bigger. But there's more. For more on the long-term financial and economic and social implications of the pandemic, let's bring in Paul Shear, research fellow at the Musavra Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. Paul, it's great to have you on. You put out a research note last week, which I just thought was fascinating, trying to, trying to extrapolate out the, the way that the world may change in the years or even decades to come. It's pretty, pretty incredible. And one of the things that we've seen is that even as we've moved toward globalization the last number of years, COVID may be a huge reversal from that. Tell us why. Yeah. Thanks very much, Brian. Great to be with you. Good to see you again. Yeah. No, it's it's very deceptive, I think, as you pointed out, because if you look at the economic data, you know, the economy has bounced back. It's very much a V-shaped recovery. Uh, GDP in the U.S. is only a, a little bit less than 1% below its pre-COVID level, and it's clearly going to pass that pretty soon. Um, but no, there are, there is a lot of cha- underlying changes in the uh, in the economy. And one of them, of course, is this um, disparity between people who have done relatively well uh, through this whole episode, and I'm referring here to you know, people like us, the professional managerial class, people who can work from home in front of a computer, manipulating data and exchanging information, versus uh, people who uh, have been working in uh, more manual sectors and sectors that have been uh, impacted by the uh, COVID shock and who will not be able to ride the recovery uh, in the same way. So, uh, you know, unemployment among those groups is still quite high. Labor force participation rate is down. Um, and there's a lot of residual damage uh, in the labor market. Meanwhile, in the financial markets, of course, a key focus of this program, uh, S&P 500 is 25% above the pre-COVID level. You'd look at that and say, what COVID? Uh, and of course, IT stocks, big tech stocks are driving that. But if you are not directly geared into the financial markets, through an investment portfolio, you've lost your job. Um, these are really, really tough times. They certainly are. And, you know, without casting any blame, because I'm sure there's a lot of people that want to throw blame around, we'd like to find solutions rather than that, Paul. We showed our viewers on the intro to you how big some of the biggest companies have gotten. Unfortunately, at the beginning, there was a lot of confusion about COVID, which we now, through the science and data, have cleared up. We shut down a lot of businesses here and in the UK as well, forced everybody to go online. Unfortunately, some of those decisions maybe uh, looked at askance over the next few years. But the damage is there either way. The big have gotten bigger. Do you think that will continue? Do you think the age of the smaller mid-sized business is going to be tougher? Because we've all just learned to shop online and do everything digitally. It just exacerbated a trend that was already well underway. Indeed. And I think that's a broader theme, Brian, that uh, COVID, if you look at the longer term implications, there are a number of of issues which you you really think the pre-existing trend, it was there, whether it's inequality, whether it's this very low natural rate of interest, uh, whether it's a little bit of the pendulum swinging back against globalization, uh, digitalization, virtualization of the economy, all of these trends have been put on uh, steroids in some cases. Um, But no, I I think... um, 
you know, I think getting back to that globalization point that you led in with as well, one of the things that's been very surprising to, to me, somebody who used to spend a lot of time on airplanes flying around the world, uh, is that uh, you know, global travel has been shut down but also borders have come back and nation states have come back um, in a way that uh, perhaps we didn't expect before. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the longer term impact there, it's not quite clear exactly uh, to what extent we're going to go back to that heyday of globalization, international travel, um, and, you know, the feeling that, yeah. Uh, you know, we're just one planet with, uh, you know, a lot of global solutions that need to be tackled together. It has been a little bit surprising the extent to which nation states have pulled back and are really looking after their own backyards rather than thinking about global yeah. solutions. And and it seems like, Paul, and I hate to say this, that inequality is just going to surge. I was actually speaking with a friend of mine who's a high school teacher in New Jersey at a, at a working class area. His high school has about, this is yesterday, has about 300 seniors in it. He said about 30 are attending class in person or online full-time. About 10% of the seniors in his high school are actually involved and engaged either in person or in virtual learning. The inequality damage that is going to be done here could last decades, could it not? And that is going to be Mm -hmm. maybe the lasting story in the US, the UK, and globally, of COVID? No, I think you put your finger on the key point. And of course, none of us, uh, or here at least as we speak, are epidemiologists. And you know, what happened in this uh, crisis was the sort of the microphone or the, the sort of imprimatur of authority passed from economists uh, to these medical scientists and medical experts. That's fine. Um, but we have been a little bit at the mercy of sort of uh, technocrats, people who are saying we're going to shut down, we're going to lock down the schools. And it does defy common sense in many cases. And again, from an economic point of view, the damage to human capital formation uh, for you know students who are out of college, out of, stu- out of uh, school for a year, not to mention potential psycho- psychological damage, is you know it's a very very worrying thing. You did ask about the uh, the bi- big ones going to winners take all. I think there's a key element of that. We've seen that with the big tech stocks, but this is still an environment in which um, you know there's lots of, of small businesses uh, you know can position themselves because we're living through a period of dramatic still technological and innovation and digitalization. So still a lot of room for new business models to crop up. And I would say, you know, we don't want to bring down the big boys. We want to lift the little boys up, little girls up here um, and not get sort of zero sum game uh, mentality about things. Yeah. and, And kids, let's be optimistic. Kids, they are resilient. Let's hope a lot of that learning loss will be able to be make up. But No doubt there will be many things, as you laid out with the things that we hit on others, Paul, that have changed for either the short term or the long term around COVID. Paul Sheard, Paul, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Great pleasure. Same to you, Brian. All right, you're welcome. All right, still ahead. Tesla apparently being forced to hit the brakes on its highly anticipated German Gigafactory. And just a reminder, if you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast. It's on Apple, Spotify, and all the major podcasting programs. Dow Futures up 170, and we're back. Good Monday morning. We'll see you in two minutes. It's a good morning. Green shoots everywhere as COVID cases crash and futures indicate stocks could surge to start their trading month. 
The Oracle speaks, and investors listen, and Warren Buffett and crew pulling no punches, slamming Bitcoin, SPACs, and Robinhood. And follow the gas money. What driving trends are telling us about the state of the American economy? It's your morning RBI, and it's coming up on this Monday, May 3rd, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, welcome or welcome back, everybody. Good morning. I'm Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us. Kicking off your May, well, May for trading. It's May 3rd, but either way, welcome to May. And here's how your Monday money looks right now. And it looks pretty doggone good. Stock futures, they are up triple digits. The Dow is up 142 right now. Not as quite as high as it was a few minutes ago, but still up. NASDAQ higher as well. And a reminder, this month could, well, could, we'll see what happens, but it could mark another record for the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ coming into May is up six months in a row. That's its longest winning streak since, well, the seven-month streak that ended in January of 2018. So if May, which, by the way, gets a bad rep for stocks, selling May go away, not lately. May has actually been a pretty good month for the equity market the last few years. If we can rise in May, we'll tie that record on the NASDAQ going back about three years. It's also another busy week of quarterly earnings. You got a lot of names out this week. Pfizer, GM, PayPal, Uber, Square, Viacom, CBS, DraftKings, and a bunch of other names I don't have time to read. There's the wall. And of course, we have also been focused a lot on small caps here on this show since last summer, and the guests who have recommended them, like Dan Vrew and others, have been spot on. The Russell 2000, if you haven't noticed, is in the middle of a seven-month winning streak, and it's higher 12 out of the last 13 months. It's flattened out a bit. Last couple of months, we know, but overall the chart has been very good, up 80% in a year. We'll watch the small caps. Will they break out or have they topped out and will turn back down? Time will tell, but small caps certainly had been on fire. Something to watch. All right, something else to watch. Some of this morning's big corporate headlines and news. Frank is back with some of those. Frank, good morning. Hey, good morning again, Brian. We start with a little Monday morning deal news. Private equity firm Apollo is reportedly near an agreement to buy Verizon's media assets. A deal could come as soon as today and be valued at close to $5 billion. Apple and Fortnite maker Epic Games are facing off in court. The trial begins today in a federal court in Oakland, California, and is expected to last just about three weeks. The case focuses on Apple's App Store and whether it's running a monopoly. At issue is whether the tech giant should be allowed to take a 30% cut of revenues from in-app purchases. And Tesla's factory outside Berlin reportedly won't start production before the end of January. A German trade magazine says there have been delays affecting battery pack output. Brian, back over to you. All right, Frank, we'll see you in a few minutes. Frank, thank you very much. Well, meantime, the president and Congress set to kick off talks on President Biden's latest $2 trillion spending plan. It includes about $400 billion for things that we think of as traditional infrastructure, another $600 billion for other transportation projects, and an additional trillion for programs such as in-home health care, child care, supply chains, and pro-union bills. Despite this, the president hopeful that he can get some bipartisan support, and the president's chief of staff, Ron Klain, revealing the White House has invited Senator Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia and some others on the right to meet at the White House this week. For more, we're joined by Ed Mills, Washington Policy Analyst at Raymond James. Ed, uh, th- great to have you on. By the way, your team putting out spectacular work, you and your team uh, laying out exactly what is in some of these bills. Many of these bills, by the way, I think have been on the books for years. 
in D.C. now all kind of coming together. I don't think it's a surprise that representatives from West Virginia are going to be at the White House. Hopefully, it seems that West Virginia holds all the cards right now. Yeah, no, it's a smart decision by Senate Republicans to put Shelley Moore Capito at the front of this, uh, leading the Republican negotiations, because if she is rebuffed and there is a problem for what is the other West Virginia senator looking for, it's harder for Joe Manchin to get on board. Uh, it's harder for him to push aside the offer as illegitimate. Um, and so kind of the more that uh, Senator Capito is in these negotiations, uh, the longer we'll have the negotiations on a bipartisan basis. Not sure if we get there, um, but we have to first see if Washington can try and do it. And by the way, West Virginia, love it, almost heaven, right, has some of the worst roads and bridges in the United States. It's faced population decline over the last few decades. Is there anything you think in this bill that will get Capito, Mansion on board for the whole, what, two or $1.9 trillion? I don't know if it's the full $2 trillion. Um, you know, what I would be focused on is I think there's a lot of spending uh, we can get on board. And I think there is a trillion dollars of spending that you probably could see on a bipartisan basis. Uh, one of the things that we've looked at is that the surface transportation bill, the roads and bridges traditional bill, uh, that's set to expire on October 1st anyway. Uh, there's already a push to have a half trillion dollars um, reauthorized there over the next five years. That's probably the basis for those discussions where things really do break down is how to pay for things. Um, Republicans are not on board for an increase in the corporate tax rate. Uh, they're not on board for some of the other tax increases that the Biden administration uh, is pushing for. So it really comes to a conversation as to how much does the gas tax allow you to pay for this? Is there something bipartisan you can get for a revenue raise? Or are we looking at more deficit spending? If you get a bipartisan deal, I think it's probably a combination of each of those. You said it, the gas tax, Ed. I mean, that, that was supposed to be what paid for infrastructure. The gas tax is a political minefield, hasn't been raised in, I think, 20 years. It's like 40% lower adjusted for inflation than it was ever meant to be 20 or 30 years ago. Any chance so-called usage tax like a gas tax, get passed here? Or will it be, let's raise taxes on them? Them meaning, you know, millionaires and billionaires who are clearly not, not doing their, quote, fair share. Yeah, Brian, I think you raise a really important point, which is um, what you're getting at here is that Democrats look at the gas tax as somewhat regressive, that it is more impactful for uh, lower income households. And so they're not very interested in increasing that. It's also something that has been a political third rail for years. Um, gas is one of the few things you watch and just tick up as you're sitting at the pump and politically very difficult to do. If there's anything that is close to a usage tax, um, I do think it's probably more on businesses. And you could see maybe a carbon tax at the border. Um, that's something that Paul Ryan had uh, discussed, having that border adjustment tax. There is some interest in D.C. to say, 
Is there a way of capturing a tax on carbon as it comes into the United States about leveling the playing field on the manufacturing differences and the higher use of other high carbon products outside of the United States? That's what I'd be looking for in tax increases. Bottom line, we got about four trillion still on the table. You got the, the this sort of the Ameri- you know the, the infrastructure bill, whatever you want to call it, and the, and the family bill. I'm just kind of breaking it down. Basically, do you think either one ultimately Ed does pass in some form, or is yeah, forced so Brian, Yeah, no. So I think what's difficult here is I've talked to a lot of people in D.C. and there is no master plan. Um, there's a lot of political decisions to be made. There's a really strong desire to get things done by the August recess. Um, But the way people here in D.C. look at that is that's only eight weeks that the House of Representatives in the Senate is scheduled to be in session between now and then. Can we get something done in eight working weeks that fundamentally changes the economy? People are skeptical uh, that that's possible. They say it could happen. I think when we take a forest from the trees approach, uh, yeah. There is going to be a lot more spending that gets approved in D.C. this year. Um, I put the over under maybe two to three trillion, not at that four trillion dollar mark. Uh, taxes will be going up, but I don't think it's going to go up to the same amount. I do think we're at the over under there about 50 percent uh, paid for 50 percent deficit spending at the end of the day. There we go. So maybe the uh, the debt. Let's hope that interest rates. Stay low for a long time. Otherwise, that interest on that debt may be a little bit harder to pay. Ed Mills of Raymond James. Ed, great work laying it out plainly and clearly. Ed, good to see you. Thanks again. Take care. Likewise. Have a great day, Brian. All right, you too. All right, on deck. Why Warren Buffett is slamming Robinhood, saying it's turning investors into gamblers. But first, as we head to break, three other top headlines this Monday morning. One, Ether rising. The crypto, look at that, hitting another all-time high, busting out to nearly 3,200. It's up more than 300% so far this year. Story two, the FT reporting Credit Suisse only made $17.5 million in fees from Archegos last year. It sounds like a lot, but the collapse of Archegos ended up costing Credit Suisse more than $5 billion in losses. We call that not a good investment. And finally, mission complete. Four astronauts aboard SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule safely returning to Earth yesterday, splashing down in the Gulf of Mexico. Very cool to see. All right, we're going to take a short break. Dow futures up more than 100, and we're back right after this. All right, welcome back. Well, the Oracle of Omaha addressing investors over the weekend and Warren Buffett having lots to say. Becky Quick, who was there and moderating a bunch of all this, joining us now. And Becky, where do we start? Because, I mean, Warren and his deputy, (laughs) Charlie Munger, they were coming out swinging. I mean, it was like Ali Liston. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they had a lot of comments. And a lot of things that probably tick some people off. But why don't we just start with the markets in general and what's happening right now? You know, Buffett's always advocated investing for the masses. And that's exactly what's happened lately. As of last month, U.S. households had 41 percent of their total financial assets in stocks. That is more than ever before. But the way some of these individuals are putting their money into the markets concerns Buffett. He thinks many of them seem to be playing the markets instead of investing in the markets. And he thinks apps like Robinhood are to blame. He says he's going to be very very closely reading the company's registration form when it files to go public. 
I do want to say I'm concerned about how they handle the source of income when they they say they they don't charge the customer anything. I mean, it, it, uh, you know, uh, uh, it'll just be interesting to watch how they describe it. I mean, it, but but they they uh, have attracted, maybe set out to attract, but they have attracted. Uh, I think I read where twelve or thirteen percent of their their casino participants were dealing in puts and calls. I looked up on Apple's, you know, the number of seven day calls and fourteen day calls outstanding, and I'm I'm sure a lot of that is coming through Robin, and that's a bunch of people writing. They're gambling on the price of Apple over the next seven days or forty. There's nothing, you know. There's nothing illegal about it. There's nothing immoral. Uh, but uh, uh, I don't think you'd build a society around people doing it. Buffett's point has always been that it's impossible even for the professionals to accurately time the markets and that you need to be invested over the long haul to really make money and money that lasts. You can't be trading in and out of stocks. At least that's his opinion. But this market is different. And as a result, Berkshire is holding more cash than Buffett would like, more than $145 billion at the end of the quarter. Buffett says that the amount of money in SPACs right now, those special purpose acquisition companies, is driving up prices and it makes it a lot tougher for him to find things that he wants to buy, at least at the prices he is willing to pay. It's where the money is now and Wall Street goes where the money is and it it, it does anything, you know, basically that that works. And SPACs have been working for a while and you stick your, a famous name on it, you can... You can sell almost anything, and it, it's it's but it's it's uh, it's an exaggerated version of what we've seen in in kind of uh, uh, well gambling done type market. That's not to say that Buffett likes the alternative of sitting in cash. He also talked about inflation that Berkshire's seeing in all of its companies and things like the prices of lumber and all kinds of raw materials. And while the Federal Reserve seems to think that those inflationary pressures are temporary, he and Charlie Munger say that this is a movie that we just don't know the ending to, Brian. Yeah, and, and Warren Buffett, of course, getting all the attention. But I thought the Munger comments were a lot more. Maybe it's just because, you know, what, what, I think Munger's like 97 years old. He doesn't he's the honey badger at this point. Right. He doesn't give a you know what. He was slamming <laughs> specs. Charlie hasn't saying, cared in quite you know, a while what stuff. people think of what he says. Yeah, that's pretty much. He's been the honey badger for a while, I guess, Becky. But I mean, they're coming out swinging on specs in particular. I mean, just hammering them. Well, I, you know, they also talked about this the whole idea and, you know, forgive me, it all kind of mushes together in my head after being through this. But both of them were pretty outspoken about the idea that when it comes to SPACs, um, they have a requirement that they have to spend the money within two years or they have to give the money back to the investors. And I think it was Buffett who said, look, if I had a gun at my head, I could buy a company in two years, but it probably wouldn't be a very good company. And I, I think the motivations behind some of these things, the idea that the the person who has their name on the SPAC makes money on this often, even if the investors don't, that they can trade back out of it very quickly and that they make money at the high watermarks. I think all of those are things that just don't sit well with them. But they have a very different model, do they not? I mean, that's the point. I mean, Berkshire Hathaway buys companies to put into its portfolio, right? Let's let's say it's like a, I mean, it's a bad example. It's a sofa, right? You're, you're buying a sofa. There's two ways to buy a sofa, Becky. 
if you want to keep it for 20 or 30 years in your home, you're going to buy a sofa you really love, and that looks great. If you're buying a sofa because you think you're going to sell it to somebody else in a year or two, which is what private equity firms do, not knocking it, it's just the way it is, right? Either spin it off or go public. The difference is they view assets very differently than probably SPAC investors or private equity. Do they not? That's a very fair point. I would agree with that. You ever bought a sofa for two years, Becky? You, you kind of liked it, but it was, you, know, you knew that it was just College. ugly enough you could dump it off on somebody else. I think College. that was Munger's point. Yeah, it's like I need this for a year. Yeah, I need this for a year in college, and then you kind of move on, right? Yeah, and I think it seemed like from the comments that we read, and by the way, all this stuff was the most read on CNBC.com over the weekend, that was kind of their view. Did they have a fundamental view on the overall equity markets? I mean, is the S&P at 31 times I, earnings? Are, I, they, are they nervous about stocks generally? It's tricky. I, I, I think that they have a hard time valuing some stocks. I think they think some, some stocks are very well-priced. They like Apple. They talk about how that's one of the crown jewels of the company at this point because they own 5.4% of it. I, I think the question is, where do you put your money otherwise? And if you're worried about inflation, then stocks do look like a good place. And when you're looking at zero interest rates, you know, those are the things that interest rates are usually gravity on stocks. So I, I, I think they're not sure. You know, it's hard to say where this is going to play out. And I, I had no idea until just now, Becky, that they own they own five and a half percent of Apple. I didn't no idea that much. Yep. It's it's Berkshire's largest stock holding. Wow. Five po- and that point four makes, like sofas, makes all the difference. Becky Quick, I have a sneaking suspicion. <laughs> we'll have more of this on Squawk Box coming up at the top of the hour. We look forward to it, Becky. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. See ya. All right, you're welcome. That's in a few minutes. We'll see a lot more all three hours on Squawk. Dow Futures up. Valerie Grant, maybe, is up right after this. Well, today's RBI has to do with you, specifically your driving, because you, all of you out there, are doing a lot of it lately. You can't kid us. You're not just hanging out at home because the data sees right through it. According to Gas Buddy, demand for gasoline soared 9% on Saturday. That's from just a week ago. That's right, gasoline demand jumping nearly 10% in seven days. And Gas Buddy also says weekly gas demand rose 3%. That's the second highest week since the pandemic began. You got to go back to the hot. There's no holiday and it still surged. There is a lot of you on the road. Look at Apple mobility data. Driving is way, way up from just a few months ago. That's the, that's the top line. And it's coming at the expense of mass transit, which is the pink line below, which is still way, way down below where it was. More of you are simply getting out there as vaccines roll out and COVID cases crash. And summer is coming. And since apparently all of you bought a car during the pandemic because you didn't want to get on a subway or a train, one thing is pretty clear. If the current trends continue, 2021 is going to be known as the year of the traffic jam. We'll see on I-95 at some point in the summer. And I mean, wave to each other as we're sitting stopped. Random, but interesting. All right. Futures are higher on the first trading day of May, up over triple digits on the Jow. And joining us is ABLP Senior VP. I said a lot of Bs there. Valerie Grant. <laughs> Valerie, it's good to have you back on. Uh, I would like to read you a quick market comment from Citigroup's Tobias Levkovich over the weekend and see if you agree. Tobias, a well-known strategist, writes, quote, 
Our stance of the market could be too cautious with a variety of upside risks, including significant fund flows, more impressive earnings, as well as additional monetary stimulus. So Citigroup kind of saying they may not be bullish enough, but Valerie at 31 times trailing earnings on the S&P 500, how should we feel about the stock market right now? I, I'm feeling pretty constructive about the market. You're right. I mean, the, the market is trading at 31 times earnings on a trailing basis, which is um, comparing it that to over the past two years, a multiple of 23 times. But what we're seeing is that the earnings results are really, really strong. And so I do tend to agree that earnings could, in fact, be stronger than investors expect um, as we move through this, this earnings season and future earnings seasons. Uh, with respect to monetary stimulus, I'm, I'm less focused on that. I think that the real catalyst here is fiscal stimulus. The fiscal stimulus is really spurring uh, demand among cons uh, consumers and I think leading uh, really to um, the recovery in top-line revenues as well as profits, particularly for consumer-facing companies. Um, so I, I, I would say I tend to agree. Is there any part of the market, because you focus on ESG, and we have seen the flows into ESG simply continue. Is there any part, though, Valerie, that you think maybe has gotten a little bit too hot? It's very easy, for, and you know what I'm talking about, companies that say, we're ESG. I know we make deadly chemicals, but we're still really socially and environmentally sound because we buy carbon credits. Is there any part of the market that has gotten too juicy? I don't know if there's a particular part of the market that's gotten too juicy, but what I will say is that as investors have started to focus on environmental, social, and governance issues, we are really being as rigorous in evaluating companies on those dimensions as we are in evaluating their financial performance. So as an example, many companies have made proclamations about um, becoming carbon neutral by a date certain. And one thing you have to ask is, okay, help us understand how you're going to get there. Are you talking about your scope one, mm -hmm. Scope two or scope three emissions? How does this affect your overall operations? How does it affect your products and services? Uh, what are what is the capital requirement for you to reach those targets and goals? So those are the kinds of conversations that we're having with companies as these announcements uh, and headlines um, uh, grab our attention. We're really doing yeah. a lot of uh, in-depth research as we meet with companies and try to understand what it really means um, in terms of their uh, their operating strategy and ultimately their equity valuation as well. And are they doing it or are they just saying it? No, I, I think a lot of it is real. A lot of it is real. And, it, and it's not just to, um, uh, uh, you know, to assuage the, the interests of, 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 uh, of the newspapers. Many times it's economically driven. I think what companies are doing is they're looking at their businesses differently and they're figuring out that there are ways yeah. to actually improve their energy efficiency also while improving their cost structure. There are also products and services that are very compelling as you look at issues related to climate change yeah. and other factors. So, yeah, no, it's real. Valerie, we got to leave it. Yeah, real. it's good to hear that it's actually occurring, not just words. Valerie, got to leave it there. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day and a great week. Speak to you soon. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Wex, Dow Futures up triple digits. We'll see you tomorrow. Squawk is next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway. 
and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.